0: Welcome to the Jesus on Prophecy audio resource for the Monroe, Michigan site. Here you will find all the messages from the Jesus on Prophecy series. If these messages are a blessing to you, please share them with your friends and family. We pray all of these resources will encourage you to study God's word as never before. Thank you that you have given us insight and understanding, and I am confident, Lord, that tonight will be the same. I pray for your spirit. Lord, I pray for those that, um, because of sicknesses or work schedules, were not able to make it tonight. And Father, I pray that they will come back on Saturday night, that they can continue growing in understanding. Father, I pray for my friends that came out this evening, that this will not just be, again, good information, good insights, but elements, Father, that by faith will transform us will lead us into a deeper, more surrendered conversion with you. Father, glorify yourself through your Son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Um, Last night I asked you if you like basketball, and um, we talked about the Globetrotters, and this young man named Thunderlaw, who was able to set a record. uh, You guys were impressed with that? (laughs) Every time I watch it, it just blows my mind how far that ball went. Uh, The entire court, I have a hard time making it from half court, Uh, Jude Law was able to make it from the bleachers on the other side. The point that we made was we are amazed at a young man being able to throw a ball through a hoop from that distance. What we should be amazed is that God was able to predict something with this level of accuracy. He predicted that from the beginning of the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince will be 483 literal years. And we spent time last night understanding all of those prophetic equations and deriving the meaning straight from the Bible. That is an impressive declaration that God made. And so last night, we established the fact that there are empirical evidences. That date, 457 A.D., we get that from secular archaeology. This is not a date given to us in Scripture. So we have um, things that are outside of the Bible that confirm the Bible's validity, its veracity. So from 457 A.D. until Jesus shows up, um, we're 483 years. That's why, that's why Jesus could, um, the day after his baptism, uh, that weekend go to church and read from the prophet Isaiah and say, Today this prophecy is fulfilled. You guys remember that last night? Today this prophecy is fulfilled because Jesus had become the Messiah, Jesus had become the Christ, and those two words, what do they actually mean? Who remembers? The anointed. The anointed one It's very important for you to understand these terms because Messiah and Christ are not names, they're adjectives. Messiah is the Hebrew for anointed and Christ is the Greek meaning anointed. So we talked about the seven seven weeks, 62 weeks, total of 69 weeks. But the angel had told Daniel that it had been 70 weeks that had been uh, given to the Jews and to Jerusalem, the holy city. So we went already and covered 69 weeks. How many weeks are left to cover? One. One One more week. So tonight we're going to be spending time looking at this last week of this prophecy and trying to understand what it all was trying to tell us ahead of time and, of course, being fulfilled in Jesus. We are nearing the end of these six keys to unlock revelation and prophecy in general. We saw that the book of Revelation is largely symbolic. It makes major, major use of the Old Testament and as well as the New. It has ordered structures and is Christ-centered prophecies. And tonight, we're going to see something that will bless you tremendously. This will really help give you orientation as you navigate through the book of Revelation, the sanctuary imagery. And then on Saturday night and Sunday night, we're going to be looking at the historical applications. The sanctuary and prophecy, unfortunately... Many Christians know very little, if at all, on the structure. The sanctuary in the Old Testament dominated the literature and the imagery. But there was really one purpose. It's a very complex system. God gave all the instructions, all the ceremonies. So this is not the Jews trying to come up with complex systems. It was God that had given in detail every aspect of this structure called the sanctuary But there was one reason and one reason only that God had given it. It's found in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8. It's a very tender, loving reason. Exodus 25 verse 8 says, And let them, that's the children of Israel, make me a what? A sanctuary. For what reason, Lord? That I may do what? Dwell among them. See, this theme runs throughout the entire Old Testament. That's why in Daniel chapter 2, as God's people had grown, gone into apostasy through idolatry, they had forgotten the God of heaven. And the very first prophecy that God gives in Daniel chapter 2 was an answer to the humanistic pagan view that the gods do not dwell with humans. Well, not the God of Israel. From the very beginning, God had instructed them that they would build a sanctuary because God wanted to be where? With man. You know, it's interesting, as a father, you, parent in general, you go through, I think, a very predictable stage where your children want to be with you everywhere when they're little, right? Even in the bathroom, they want to be there with you. And I have two daughters that sometimes, I I have to be careful now when I turn around and walk because I bumped into my little one plenty of times and knocked her over. What were you doing there? You know, like a ninja just shows up behind me. Um, but then they get older, and when they start entering the teenage years, and they're with their friends, you know, dad shows up or dad tells a dad joke, God forbid. And then, of course, they, they begin to not want to be around you not that much. But you miss your kids, and you want to spend time with your kids, but your kids are not as excited at spending time with you as when they were little. Well, God has always been excited in being with us. His biggest desire has been to be with us. And there's a reason why God is saying this. Our sins and our iniquities and transgressions have brought separation between God and humanity. This sanctuary, listen carefully, This sanctuary would reveal how God would bring reconciliation once again. The sanctuary service was not to keep God's way of keeping the Israelites busy to keep them out of trouble, Throughout the entire process, all of the the feasts and celebrations and instructions of the sanctuary were there to teach this one huge truth. God's greatest desire was to dwell with the creatures He created. And He he found a way. If God would manifest His glory, He would consume the sinners. So God would clothe it and cover it up in this structure called the sanctuary. But God wanted to be with us, and through the sanctuary, we would find how God would relate to sins, iniquities, and transgressions. Uh, if you're not familiar with the sanctuary, I'm going to give you a brief introduction. That way we are all on the same page. These are the main components of the sanctuary, the this, this structure itself. In Exodus 29, 38, it mentions an altar of sacrifice. In Exodus 30, verse 18, you have a bronze laver. It was a big uh, platform that the priests would go and wash their hands before entering into the sanctuary place, the, the holy place. Exodus 25, verse 30, you have a table of bread of the presence. Exodus 25, 31, you have a 7 branched lampstand. Exodus uh, 30, verse 8, you have an altar of incense. And then in Exodus 25, verse 10, you have an, the Ark of the Covenant. And the reason I've listed it in this sequence is if you were to enter into the sanctuary service, that is in the order you would find them. You would begin with the altar, the, the furthest most part of, of the sanctuary, followed by the laver which would be right here. That would be the laver. This is the altar of sacrifice. Guess what animal was usually burning in there? What kind of an animal? Sheep. A lamb, a sheep. But typically a lamb in the morning and the evening we will see the priest before going into the, the, the holy place would wash themselves in here. And there you had a seven-branch lampstand, bread of the presence, altar of incense, and there was this big, thick curtain right here. And behind that curtain was the Ark of the Covenant where, in Hebrew, you talk about the Shekinah glory. It was the visible manifestation that the creator of the universe, the sustainer of life, was making himself present at that place. It's a very solemn, most holy place. The only person that could go in there was only one of the priests, the, most, the, the high priest. The high priest was the only one allowed to go into the most holy place, once a year so these are the parts of the the sanctuary and they're found all throughout the book of revelation all the parts of the sanctuary that i just mentioned to you are found in the book of revelation revelation 1 verses 9 through 20 we read that john saw seven golden lampstands a direct reference to the sanctuary in revelation 4 6 uh, john sees that there was a great sea of glass in first kings chapter 7 verse 23 That's how the Bible refers to that laver, as the sea. In Revelation 5, 6, you have a lamb as though he had been slain. Um, In Revelation 8, 2-5, he was given much incense that he should offer it with prayers of the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. This is making a clear reference to the Old Testament service. And it's interesting that in the Old Testament, the closest the children of Israel could come was through this altar that was continually burning this aromatic for four ingredient component called incense, and the smoke, the aromatic, pleasant smell would go into the most holy place where God dwelt. Through the priest, the prayers of the saints would enter and symbolically, through the incense, make it into the direct presence of God. That incense was symbolic that God hears our prayers. And God was trying to teach it in a very beautiful, uh, um, simple way. You want to know that I hear you? The altar of incense assures you that I hear your prayers. And that altar is mentioned in the book of Revelation. Revelation eleven nineteen. it mentions the Ark of the Covenant. This piece of furniture was in the most holy place. It was seen in the temple. Revelation 15, verse, verses 5 through 8, you have the whole structure being mentioned. The temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. Revelation 19 again once, mention, once more mentions the lamb and revelation twenty one verse two, verses two to eight it mentions the tabernacle of God is with man. It's the same word, a Greek word for the sanctuary. So all throughout the book of Revelation, you have a consistent continual referencing to the sanctuary service. The old Old Testament sanctuary structure and service covers the entirety of the book of Revelation from the first chapter. To the last chapter. Do you think it's important to study the sanctuary in order to understand the book of Revelation? You, bet, you better believe it. Without a basic and proper understanding of the sanctuary service which God gave to Old Testament Israel, our study of Revelation will be at, at best limited, but usually at worst completely wrong. Because we have left the Old Testament understanding and I'm not invested in time understanding the sanctuary service, when we approach the book of Revelation, We don't know what to do with those pieces of furniture because we don't understand what they were for, what what function they served. Again, this is a basic structure, uh, a visual, air view of the sanctuary, uh, the structure itself. And you have the, the first five books of the Bible. And as a Christian, as I was a young person, I would hear a pastor preach an impassioned sermon about reading through the Bible, the importance of reading through the whole Bible. And then I'd be like, January 1st, I'm, this is the year. I'm going to read through the Bible on this year. And so I would start with Genesis. I would do good. Lots of stories. I love it. Exodus, lots of stories. But then I get to Leviticus. And all these details, all this minutia, And I would get tired, and that's as far as it would go. <laughs> I would put the, the Bible away and go back to watching The Price is right? Right? And forget that. And then again, two or three years would go by, and then I finally realized, why did God leave such a boring book in the Bible? The reason it was boring is because I did not know it was about Jesus. But once I understood that I should be able to see Jesus in the book of Leviticus, it changed me. It's revolutionary. And it's interesting that in um, in in the Hebrew language, in Leviticus, It is the book in the Old Testament in which the word forgiven is repeated the most. It is a book full of assurance that if it's one thing that God desires to do to the human race is to forgive our sins. So the book of Leviticus far from bringing drudgery, it should bring hope and assurance that the God of heaven is not looking down on us, wanting to condemn us, but rather to save us through the forgiveness of our sins. Again, we have this... um, aerial view of the sanctuary service. Uh, you had at the entrance the altar of sacrifice, the basin of bronze for the washing, and then the other structure, you saw the cutout, cutout but no, nobody, no regular Israelite was allowed to look inside. As far as you would go, if, if, you, if you stole someone's money, if you gossiped about someone, or you were committing some kind of sin, and you were convicted of it, you would have to bring a prescribed animal Typically, a lamb or a sheep, and you could come in through this gate, and a priest would receive you and would take you to the side of this table. They they would have you kneel next to the animal. You would place your hands over the head of the animal, confess your sins, and then the priest would hand you a knife. And you know what you had to do with that knife? Cut the throat of that animal, and there would be another priest collecting the blood of that animal and would sprinkle the altar, and then you're done. The priest would bless you and say, go home, you're free. But another priest would take that lamb, open it, take the innards, and God had a prescribed way of how to relate to the washing of the inner parts, and then the whole lamb was offered and burnt as a sin offering. But you got to go home free. This is how God was trying to teach the human race, the sacrifice that it would take for God and sinners to be reconciled again. The wages of sin is what, my friends? Yeah. Who died that day? You were the sacrifice. God was already preaching the gospel. God was already teaching us what it would take for humanity to once again be able to dwell with God. It would require the sacrifice of God himself, and he was willing to do it. Inside, what no Israelite could see, some of the priests would get to see only the first compartment, but that last compartment at the back, who was the only one that could go in there once a year? Do you guys remember who? The high priest. 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 All the other priests would come to maintain the lamps, make sure that they're burning, put enough oil, olive oil in there, make sure that there was enough incense burning in the altar of incense, and they would change uh, weekly the bread of the presence with some frankincense sprinkled on top. Six loaves, uh, six, two piles of six loaves, 12 in total. That was the simple overview of the sanctuary service. And as we saw, every single part of these is found in the book of Revelation. We're going to have a very simplified overview of what actually happened. In Exodus chapter 29, verses 38 through 39, we read, Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs of the first year, Day by day, how often? Continually. One lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Why? Well, people had to travel. People had to go sometimes overseas. Sometimes your properties were way up north in Israel. And so you didn't have cars, you didn't have planes. It was by foot or donkey or camel if you were uber rich. But most people, it was prohibitive to come to the temple, to the sanctuary service regularly. So God, in his awesome mercy, would require the priest in the mornings to put a lamb burning that was provided by the temple, and it would burn all day. And then by evening, by sundown, they would bring another fresh lamb, place that lamb on the altar, and that lamb would be burning all night long until the morning. And then in the morning, they would start all over again. If you found yourself in a foreign land, if you found yourself too far away and you recognized and the Holy Spirit brought conviction that you were stiffing someone out of their money and you recognized you had sin in the eyes of heaven, no human being may have caught you but you knew you stood guilty and condemned because of your sin before God. You knew that the wages of sin is what? Death. You could pray towards the temple, towards the sanctuary, and receive the merits of that lamb that was continually burning, and God would receive it. God would take the sacrifice of that lamb and use it as the merit to forgive you your sins, and you were set free from the guilt and power of sin. Does that sound familiar, friends? This is the gospel being taught in the Old Testament. And let me tell you, the Apostle Paul says that there's only one gospel. It didn't change. Just because we've labeled Old and New Testament doesn't mean that there was a different gospel in the Old Testament. No human being has ever been saved outside of Jesus Christ and the, the grace of God. Some Christians, though, have heard a sad story, a false story. They have heard that the humans in the Old Testament, they were saved by keeping the law, which is false. If that was the case, then why the sacrifice? Why the blood? God was teaching the gospel, and it's always been one gospel, that we are saved by grace through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We'll see that more clearly tonight and in the upcoming evenings. Leviticus 1, 3-4 says, If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put what? His hands where? on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement, forgiveness, reconciliation. The only way for humanity to once again be reconciled to God was through the sacrifice of an innocent, unblemished victim. That was the sanctuary service in essence. There were more feasts. We'll talk about them later on throughout the series. But for tonight, this needs to be anchored. The Messiah and the sanctuary service were... (coughs) Symbolic of all that Jesus would literally come to do. Jesus, in John chapter 1, verse 21, 29, John the prophet looks at Jesus and says, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the what? The, the Lamb of God, who does what? Take away. Why did John the Baptist call Jesus the Lamb? Why not the Lion? Because he recognized that Jesus would be what? The sacrifice. Remember when Abraham was taking his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah and Isaac was carrying the wood and the fire and he says, Father, here's the wood and here's the, the fire, but what's the, where's, the, where's the sacrifice? Remember how Abraham responded? God himself will provide For himself, the sacrifice. Here was the fulfillment of that prophetic declaration. The gospel is only one, and God has always taught that same gospel. So there may be some well-meaning individuals out there trying to teach that there was a gospel in the Old Testament and a new gospel in the New Testament. That is not biblical, my friends. It is not found in the Bible. No human will ever be saved outside of the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. Um, let's see what else Jesus had to say about himself. John chapter 8, verse 12, Then Jesus spoke to them again and said, I am the what? The light of the world. Where was Jesus getting this imagery from? From the sanctuary. Within the sanctuary were the seven branch lampstands that gave continual light. They were continually burning day and night. In John chapter 6, verse 35, And Jesus said to them, I am the what? The bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He is the lamb, he is the light, he is the bread. Where was Jesus drawing these imagery from? From the very sanctuary. Mm-hmm. All the parts of the sanctuary really pointed to who? Jesus Christ. The sacrifice was who? Jesus. The light given off by that seven-branched lampstand, it was who? Jesus. That bread that was inside the sanctuary, it was who? Jesus himself. Hebrews 7:25 teaches us that Paul tells us, therefore he, that's Jesus, is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Who is the only one that we can come to God through? Mm-hmm. Through Jesus. No humans, just Jesus. Since he always lives to make what? Mm-hmm. Intercession for them. That's what that altar of incense symbolized. No Israelite could simply go and say, dear God, mm mm You had to pray through the priesthood who would take the prayers of Israel to the altar of incense and there say, God, your people are praying in the merits of, and they always brought blood. Every time they came into the holy place, they would always bring blood. And they would touch the four corners of that altar and say, because of this sacrifice, God, hear the prayers of your people. And the incense would rise and go over the curtain into the most holy place, assuring us that through the intercession of the priest and the the incense, the prayers of the people of Israel were being heard by God. Today, many people doubt whether God can hear their prayers, especially those of us that have made some pretty major mistakes in our lives. Those of us that have some things that we wish we could redo, and we sometimes wonder if God hears us. And tonight we're going to look at the fact that, number one, Jesus is also able to save. What is that one word right here, right? Save what? To the? That means that there's no limit. That means there is no limit to whom God can save. So don't let Satan deceive anyone that God can save other people, but not you. Paul says, I am of the worst of sinners. I am chief of sinners. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him because he lives to make intercession for them. Don't worry about coming to God with fancy words. God's not impressed by fancy words. Psalms 51 says, A broken and contrite heart you will not despise. When you don't feel worthy to come to God, you qualify to come to God. When you don't feel that you, you can say anything to ever merit God's forgiveness, that's when you are qualified to come to God because God wants you to come just like that hymn says, just as I am, I come, O Lamb of God, I come. So don't let Satan ever deceive you into thinking you're not worthy to come into the presence of God. Listen, my friend, none of us are. <laughs> none of us are worthy. Even pastors or wh- whoever, no human being is able to come to God except through Jesus Christ. He makes you worthy. He takes your prayers. And no matter how faulty or stammering, you need to know tonight that every prayer you've ever whispered is heard by the God of heaven because of Jesus. He intercedes for you. Hebrews 3.1 says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle. And what are the titles he gave to Jesus? High priest, High priest of our confession, mm-hmm. Christ Jesus. So here we have two major elements being placed upon Jesus. At the beginning of his ministry, John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, Behold the what? The Lamb of God. After his crucifixion and ascension, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls Jesus now our high priest. The sacrifice pointed to who? Jesus. The priesthood pointed to who? Jesus. Jesus would do so much for us that it took thousands of priests to symbolize what Jesus would do for the human race. He is an awesome Savior, and you will find everything you could ever need in Jesus Christ. He is complete. So we have that point being made, and all of this begins to now zero in on what happened to Jesus when he died. In Mark chapter 15, verses 37 through 38, it reads, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last, then the veil of the temple was torn into how many parts? In which direction? And this was not a veil even as high as this roof. It was probably double the height of this uh, structure. It's very high. And it was very thick. And it was torn from top to bottom. Um, that was a supernatural manifestation. God was trying to make a point. Jesus was the real sacrifice, the Lamb of God that would truly take away the sins of the world. The cross put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. Jesus is also our real high priest, the only mediator between God and man. The resurrected Christ put an end to the ministry of earthly priests. Two things would be done, completed in Christ. That Passover weekend, any sacrifices that would have, could have been offered were no longer necessary. That temple became obsolete because all those lambs that for thousands of years had been sacrificed, beginning from Abel, all the way down through the patriarchs and then the children of Israel, all those sacrifices, all of them collectively pointed to one sacrifice, whose sacrifice? Jesus' sacrifice. So once the reality came, did humanity continue to need to offer lambs and goats and calves? And No. Jesus had come. The reality had come. No more need of bringing lambs or animals for the sacrifice. And no need for a priesthood either. Jesus was the real sacrifice, the Lamb of God, that would truly take away all the sins of the world. We would not need uh, uh, earthly sacrifices anymore than we would need earthly priests. Um, And I will gladly pray for you. Last, Last evening, I was happy to pray and join with the rest of us to be praying. But my friends, don't think that my prayers somehow count more than yours. They don't. But pastor, you're a pastor. Listen, my friends, I'm a human. Saved by grace. The same grace that saves you is the same grace that saves me. And the same Jesus that hears my prayers is the same Jesus that hears yours. And God doesn't have favorites he loves to hear the prayers of every human being. Amen? Amen? So I will gladly pray for you, my friends, but I've often, I've often asked people when they ask you, Pastor, can you pray for me? I will ask them, are you praying? Because don't use me as your crutch. Don't say, well, God's going to hear me now because the pastor's praying for me. Nope. No. In fact, God wants you to know that you can talk to him personally. God doesn't want you to base your relationship through another human being. The only person you need is Jesus, and you have him. The ceremonies of the Old Testament sanctuary pointed to Jesus, but when these symbols met the reality, the copies were no longer needed. You and I now have Jesus, our sufficient and complete sacrifice for our sins. Jesus, our merciful and ever-interceding high priest, who brings us our prayers and our needs into the presence of God Continually. There's not a time of the day that God will not hear your prayers. In fact, I remember when I got a little bit more spiritually mature, I realized that I could pray to God while I was driving because, you know, since you're little, you told close your eyes. And I thought, well, I can't pray while I'm driving then. You know, I have friends that prayed to God when they were high on drugs. Do you think God heard those prayers? You better believe it. I have a friend who's now a pastor who he was in a public bathroom, had expelled everything that was in his stomach because of a severe overdose of every substance under the sun, including alcohol. And he was in an almost coma stupor, and he felt that he was going to die at that moment. And he had grown up in the church. His dad was a pastor himself. And in that darkness, in that Disgusting, smelly, putrid place. That man, hardly able to keep himself on top of the toilet, fell over. And with the neon light of that bathroom barely blinking, he cried out to God, Save me. Save me. Do you think God heard that prayer? He is now being used by the Lord to encourage alcoholics and drug addicts there's a God in heaven that can save to the uttermost. And he tells his story to say, if God can save me, certainly he can save you as well. Isn't God amazing? Everything you need, you have in Jesus. The sacrifice and the intercession. The ceremonies of the Old Testament sanctuary pointed to Jesus. But when the symbols met the reality, the copies were no longer needed. We have Jesus as our sacrifice. We have Jesus as our high priest. So, it makes sense why Jesus in Matthew 24, 1 to 2, would say what he said. In Matthew 24, verses 1 to 2, when the disciples asked him about the temples, he says this, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Jesus said to them, Do you see all these things? As surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be, what? Thrown down. The temple is going to be destroyed, and the disciples were like, Ah! then how are we going to get through to God? If we don't have priests and we don't have sacrifices, how are we going to be connected with God? The disciples did not understand what Jesus knew. Jesus knew that when he would die on the cross, what would happen to the veil of the temple? (laughs) 22. God the Father would would never again need to look at another animal sacrifice because who had been sacrificed now? Jesus Christ himself. So Jesus, for Jesus, it wasn't a, a panic mode. The temple will be destroyed, and it doesn't matter because you have me. I am that living temple. I am that living sacrifice. I am your living priest. Therefore, Jesus continues saying, when you see the what, my friends? Abomination, abomination of desolation. That's a very important phrase. Very important phrase. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by who? Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee where? To the mountains. Now, Jesus could see into the future because he, he understood Daniel's prophecy. He knew that that temple would, would ultimately be destroyed and it would not, no longer be necessary. And so, in the future, he said, this temple will not be destroyed by Jews, it's going to be destroyed by Rome. And this, in fact, happened in 70 AD. Jesus didn't put a date on it. He simply said, look for the abomination that causes desolation. Now, Rome had tried to be respectful with the Jews, tried to respect their their temple, because in in the Republic of Rome, you were allowed to worship any god you wanted to, but you needed to always have an emblem of Rome authority inside the temple. Jews had received an exemption from that in that no Roman emblem would be inside their temple. On the day that the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem was sacked, Rome had enough, they brought all those emblems into the temple. The abomination that would bring what? Desolation. So when the Christians saw the Romans marching in with their emblems, with the intent of putting those emblems now inside the temple of God, with the ultimate intent of finally destroying it, what did the Christians do? They fled. No Christian perished because after Jesus went back to heaven, all the Christians every day would be looking to see when that day would be fulfilled. And it it was. Rome came marching in and the Christians did not perish. Unfortunately, thousands of Jews did. In 70 AD, Rome left Jerusalem desolate. And it was because that temple was no longer necessary. In fact, when Jesus died, that's when everything ceased. God would no longer hear prayers offered through earthly priests. Listen carefully. God the Father would no longer hear prayers offered through earthly priests because now we had our own high priest. What's his name? Jesus Christ. And God the Father would no longer accept any earthly sacrifices because that sacrifice had been offered once through who? Jesus Christ. Are you tracking with me so far? This is crucial to understand when we talk about on Saturday night. So tonight we're going to take everything we've learned last night and begin to apply it. Prophecies, prophecies of the Messiah and the ending of earthly sacrifices and offerings. We began, we now, we now go a little bit faster because we're in familiar territory. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Your people, who is that referring to? The Jews. The Jews. The holy city. What city is that? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. How how many? How much time will be allotted for this? The Jews and, and Jerusalem. Seventy weeks. To do what? To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Uh, I arranged it this way, but that's exactly how it reads in the verse. There is two sets of threes. Two, speaking about something positive that Jesus would bring, and then how he would um, would relate to three things that were negative and bring in three things that were positive. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Last night we talked about the the 69-week period. And we have those two bookends, right? From, until. From the going forth of the command, 457 AD, to Messiah the Prince would be seven weeks plus 62 weeks, a total of 69 weeks. We already went through how to convert that prophetically using the scripture alone to 483 literal years, and Luke confirmed what happened on 27 AD. What did Jesus experience on that year? He was baptized. He was anointed. That's when Jesus became not just Jesus from Nazareth, but Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus in Greek, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Christ. So we've already covered these 69 weeks, and now we're going to pick up from Jesus being baptized. What does this have to say about this last week given to the Jews and Jerusalem? After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall experience what? Shall be cut off, and I'm, I'm going to just tell this to you. In the Hebrew, that is the exact same word that God uses with Abraham in regards to the sacrifice. When he's going to make a covenant, God says, I'm going to cut off a covenant with you. And when the sacrificial systems were given, it was a cut off kind of a covenant. The cut off is pointing to the fulfillment of the covenant God had made with the human family that he would send a seed that would crush the serpent's head and redeem the human race forgive our sins after 62 weeks Messiah shall be cut off does cut off sound like something good or painful what do you think that is referring to in regards to the Messiah what event in the Messiah's life do you think that's pointing to his death the crucifixion we don't just have the prophecy in regards to Jesus' baptism we now have the prophecy in which Jesus was going to actually die You know, this will help you understand why in the Gospel of John, you continually have this phrase, but his time was not yet. If you read through the Gospel of John, you've recognized that phrase, but his time was not yet. You have people in John chapter 8 ready to pick up stones and kill Jesus, but his time was not yet. But when Jesus celebrates his last supper, he says the time has come. How did Jesus know, number one, when he would be baptized, and how did he know when he would be cut off? or offered as a sacrifice because he understood this prophecy. Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And who are those people, friends? We, already, we just looked at them. Who, is, who destroyed Jerusalem and the temple? Rome. The Messiah will be crucified, and shortly after that, there will be a people that would come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. Historically, who did that? Rome, the Roman Empire. The end of it shall be with a flood till the end of the war. And what is that word right there, my friends? Desolations are what? Remember what Jesus said to the disciples? That to look for the desolation, the abomination of desolation. This is what this is where Jesus gets that word from. The desolation part comes straight out of the book of Daniel, Rome this foreign empire would come with abominations and would bring desolation, destruction to the temple. That took place, of course, after Messiah was cut off. Uh, in the middle of the week, Jesus would experience what you guys have already said, the crucifixion. After the, after, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he, again speaking of the Messiah, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to what two things? Offerings, sacrifice and offerings. When Jesus died on the cross, the gospel of Mark says that what was torn into? The veil of the temple. Signifying that would God accept any more earthly sacrifices? No more. No more offerings down here. No more priesthood down here. Now we have one high priest, and his name is Jesus Christ. We only have one sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who is who? Jesus Christ. So this Messiah, in the middle of that last prophetic week, would put an end to sacrifices and offerings, and again it repeats. After the sacrifice, after the cross, on the wing of abominations, again that word linked to the Roman Empire, shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Here is the abomination of desolation that Jesus spoke of. And he makes direct reference, spoken by the prophet Daniel. Jesus says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, flee to the mountains. Who fulfilled that prophecy? What was the pagan empire again? Rome. Rome. Rome came with the armies, sacked Jerusalem, burned the temple to the ground. And this time, unlike Babylon, who took those candelabra and all the ornaments into Babylon, Roman soldiers melted it and pocketed it. It's gone. Forever irrecoverable. So twice now, this prophecy points to the Messiah being cut off, being cut off in the middle of the week, Not for himself, putting an end through that sacrifice, putting an end to sacrifice and offerings, and twice mentioning this foreign empire, this foreign entity coming in with abominations that would cause what? Desolations. That happened just as Jesus predicted. Therefore, when you see the what, my friends, the abomination of what? Where is Jesus getting that word from? Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 through 27. And the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. That's exactly where Jesus is getting from. Spoken off by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. When you see that, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD. Rome came with its abominations that caused desolations and destroyed the temple forever. So, so far, everything is happening in Jerusalem And within Jewish people, exactly as the angel would say, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. These are all of the events that are going to happen related through and with the Jewish people. In the middle of the week, Jesus was crucified, putting an end to sacrifices and offerings. And shortly after that, the Roman Empire would bring the abomination that causes desolation. Now, the prophecy ends in 34 AD. Something happened... That was both painful and revolutionary. When these seventy weeks ended, something completely unexpected took place. It's found in the Book of Acts, chapter seven, chapter seven through nine. In AD thirty-four, the mission that the Jewish nation had carried out for over four millennia would experience a huge transition. God would now also use the Gentile nations as the proclaimers of the gospel. Up to that point, this was Israel's mission. This is why they were God's special people. Not because God would only save Israelites. In, in the book of Ruth, you have a lady named Ruth who was an Edomite. And she's saved. She experiences grace. She becomes one of God's people. In the Old Testament, you have many people that were not part of Israel become part of Israel. And God would would tell Israel, this is your mission. Go out to the pagan nations, tell them about me, they'll fall in love with me, don't fall for their idolatry, and they will come and be part of my people as well. And Israel didn't do too good with the mission. But God was patient. And after 490 years of patience, something would happen. God would now use the Gentiles to proclaim the gospel, and Paul... I don't know if you guys can see this painting right here. Um, who knows who this gentleman kneeling right here getting stoned? What, who Whose name is? Stephen. Stephen. That's where the story is found in Acts chapter 7. Stephen is the first Christian martyr, a deacon. He's preached a chapter-long sermon. Beautiful. Saturated with Scripture. And he finishes with a pointed rebuke to the Jewish leaders, and they can't stand it anymore. And when he says that he sees Jesus in heaven, they, they say that they, they gnash their teeth, Pounce on him, throwing stones at him, wanting to kill him. And so they're stoning Stephen, and, and Stephen is praying, Lord, don't count this sin against them. Don't count this sin against them, meaning forgive them. Forgive them, Lord. Who knows what the name of this man right here standing is, watching over the coats? Saul. Saul before his conversion. And then Saul, who becomes Paul, is told by God, I'm going to send you not to the Jewish people, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. You're going to become the apostle to the Gentile world, to the Greeks and everybody else, the Indians, the Africans, and eventually the South Americans, praise the Lord. I'm from Argentina. So I'm glad that the gospel, and the Mexicans, praise God, woohoo, yes. Um, and the Polish and the Germans and the French and the New Zealanders and the Australians, the gospel would now go exponentially because it would no longer be number one dependent on, I'm going to show this in the next slide. Without the need of earthly sacrifice tied to an earthly temple with an earthly priesthood, Christianity was freed to travel to the remotest parts of the world. Now believers from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people could hear and proclaim the forgiveness and cleansing of sin, reconciliation with God, and everlasting righteousness that Messiah accomplished on our behalf. That happened in 34 AD. God did not reject the Jewish nation to condemnation, no sir. Paul was a Jew. So were most of the disciples. And most of the converts early on were Jews too. So God has never excluded any human being from receiving salvation. The only thing that would change is the the Jews had been the exclusive carriers of the gospel. Now they will no longer be the exclusive ones. Now everyone that was converted, even Gentiles, could preach the gospel elsewhere. And so the gospel spread fast. Praise the Lord because it reached parts of our countries as well. These past two presentations on Jesus as the true Messiah Christ are crucial to identify and understand who the Antichrist is and why. Now that we have seen Jesus as the real Christ, it will not be difficult to see the real Antichrist in our next two presentations Saturday night, and I hope you will not miss it. So in conclusion, I don't want us just to stay with these historical facts. Messiah was cut off to make an end of sins, to finish the transgression to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. And we can understand sins, transgression, iniquity, but righteousness, that's a doozy for most of us. When you ask people, what does righteousness mean? I heard it from people in California, people that surf, when they would get a nice wave and they would say, righteous, righteous. Is that what it means? You caught a nice wave? What is righteousness? What is Righteousness. Um, I want to give you the, the most simple definition. It's beautiful as we conclude tonight. You need to understand this. Righteousness is the exact same Greek word for justice. Justice. Jesus would bring everlasting justice. Now, for most of us, we don't feel very comfortable with the word justice because sometimes we are a little bit afraid that we might be a little bit guilty. So many people get uncomfortable with the idea of justice. But we need to understand justice in light of the gospel. Why do you and I need justice? Because let's just use the word that we do understand. Righteousness is kind of nebulous. Let's stick with justice. This is not referring to God intervening in our lives regarding injustices. You know, when you get a wrong ticket or DTE gives you a wrong bill, right? Double bills you. That's not the righteousness or the justice that God is speaking to bring to us. This prophecy is speaking of a specific Kind of justice Jesus brought to all of us. In God's court of justice, our past is our worst enemy. In the cur- courts of God, who sees it all, not just behaviors, but the motives and the intent behind it inside our hearts, we stand all guilty. Our adversary knows it very well and accuses all of us of all our open and secret. Iniquities, sins, and transgressions. You know, I was was such a foolish, unconverted young man. Grew up in the church, read the Bible, was a regular attendee, and I don't know what happened, but whenever I would sin, I would close the curtains. I would make sure my parents didn't see me. My vision was so horizontal, I never bothered to say, does God see My life didn't change until the Holy Spirit said, yep, no human being sees you, look up. And when I began to realize that all those years of secret sins had been seen by God, something awoke inside of me. I felt condemned. And listen carefully, it was the best thing that could have happened to me. The enemy knew that the wages of sin is what, my friends? Death. And so he demands before God that justice, deserved justice, be inflicted upon the human race. Our sins demand what? Our death. And this is justice. This is righteous justice. And Satan says, look at her. Look at him. No, no, no. Not her. Not him. I know I tempted them. I know what they've done. They may have gotten off down there, but I know they're guilty and you know they're guilty too. You can't let them off the hook. You have to give them justice and the wages of sin is what? So God, you claim to be a God of justice, there you go. So, God punished to the fullest extent of the law, all of human sin, iniquity, and transgression. God exercised the justice deserved on the human race, but he pours it through his wrath upon who? Jesus Jesus on the cross. At the cross, Jesus received the justice we deserved so that you and I could receive the justice he deserved. This is what the Messiah would bring when the prophecy would say he would bring everlasting righteousness. He would bring everlasting justice. Through the cross, Jesus, God could tell Satan, be quiet. You can't talk like that about my child. They have believed in the sacrifice of my son. Therefore, all that they deserve, I have already executed that justice upon my son on the cross. Your dead has been paid through Jesus. All of it, all of it at the cross. That's what it means by righteousness, by justice. When Jesus brought to us, is justice needed? Because he took the justice we deserved. The justice Jesus brought to us can be summarized into words, mercy and forgiveness. Messiah will be cut off to make an end of sins. That's your sins. To finish the transgression, those are your transgressions. To make reconciliation for iniquity, that's your iniquity. To bring in everlasting justice. To give you what you don't deserve, but you desperately need it. There's a hymn that says, At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and that burden, that burden of guilt and condemnation in my heart rolled away. It was there by what, my friends? It was there by faith I received my sight. And now, how do I feel? Happy, how often? All the day. Many of us don't know what Jesus has done for us. And as Christians, we walk in darkness ignorant of the blessings God the Father has richly blessed the human race through His Son, Jesus Christ. You need His justice tonight. You need God's righteousness in your life. And God offers it to you in abundance by faith. By faith. I want us to close singing another song about the cross. The old rugged cross. How many of you guys know this hymn? My voice, voice is a little shot tonight, so I'm going to need you guys to really sing it as if you received the righteousness that came through that cross.
1: On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering. And shame and I love that old cross where the dearest and best for our world
0: second stanza
1: oh that old a rugged cross, so despised by the world, has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above. To bear it to Third Stanza. To the old rugged cross, I will ever be true, its shame and reproach gladly bear. Then he'll call me someday to my home far away, where his glory forever shall. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Till my trophies, at last, I lay down. I will lay to your broken heart, and exchange some day for.
0: Is the cross real to you, my friends? The day Messiah was cut off, he was not cut off for himself. He was cut off for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins, your iniquities, and your transgressions? But it's not that Jesus has just forgiven you for what you have done. He also gives you what you desperately need. His righteousness, His justice. It does more than just wipe your past. It fills your present and your future with all the blessings Jesus deserved. Tonight, we can all say that Jesus came to finish my transgression. Jesus came to put an end to my sins. He came to make reconciliation for my iniquity and to bring to me His everlasting righteousness. If you are in Christ, stop looking at the past. Jesus has wiped it clean. And when God the Father sees your life, He sees the perfect life of Jesus. He looks at you, and He says to Satan, What sins? She's never done anything. I only see a perfect life of a human being that loves me. What sin, Satan? Jesus' blood covers them? You have nothing to accuse them of because of Jesus. Father, I've stayed away from these parts of the books, the prophetic books, because they were difficult to understand. And I regret, Lord, having wasted so many years not understanding what I had in your Son, Jesus. So all of us tonight, we want to begin by saying thank you for being so patient with us. Thank you for being so kind and merciful. Through our years of rebellion, through our years where we rejected you, through the years we made fun of those that would try to encourage to come to you, through the years, Father, where we allow the enemy and discouragement to drag us away from you. Father, how we wish we, took, we could take those years back. But here we stand tonight, Lord, grateful that we have been found. Grateful that our greatest desire is to cling to that old rugged cross. Lord Jesus, we receive you into our hearts bring in this everlasting righteousness into each of our lives. We don't have to understand everything to receive everything. We just have to know that we need it and that you offer it freely. And Father, tonight, I pray for those that struggle receiving your salvation. Those that struggle because they feel they've been too evil, too wicked, too far away. Remind them of what we have read Jesus can save to the uttermost. There's no one your grace cannot redeem and save. Father, I pray that tonight we would leave with strong confidence that we can pray you will hear because Jesus intercedes. Help us to believe, Lord. Help us to believe that though we may not be fancy with the words, our hearts senses our need of you. And that's what you're looking for. Ultimately, Lord, you want us to finally realize how much we need you in our lives. And tonight we confess it. Father, we need Jesus in our lives. Father, let us leave with all the convictions, with all the assurances the Holy Spirit through your word has blessed us with tonight. Don't let them evaporate in the parking lot. Keep them sealed. And Father, protect my brothers and sisters that we may continue this journey of understanding you through your holy word again Saturday night. Until then, bless my friends. In Jesus' name, amen, Lord. Amen.